This is Pittsburgh Explainer from 90.5 WESA. Every week we help you catch up on the headlines from southwestern Pennsylvania. It's Friday, February 26th. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Liz Reed. Two different locals of the second largest union in the U.S. are putting their weight behind two different candidates for Pittsburgh mayor. The Service Employees International Union represents healthcare workers, public employees, security guards, and others. The 32BJ union backed Mayor Bill Peduto, while SEIU Healthcare PA is supporting his challenger from the left, Ed Ganey. Here to break down why all of this matters is WESA's Chris Potter. Chris, thanks for being on the show. Hey, it's always good to be here with you. Can you start by explaining how union endorsements work? Yeah, it's it's a complicated question because different unions do it differently at different levels. There, There's a set of rules for if you're running for a statewide office like governor or senator, and there are different rules for um, people running for municipal or more local office. SEIU can be particularly um, complicated uh, for a variety of reasons, but um, they have a state council that involves both the unions we're talking about today and then another one or two. Um, and there's just all kinds of geographical craziness. What, what I think is fair to say and important to say here is that um, there is generally, I mean, pretty much every union will have sort of a questionnaire they expect candidates to fill out. There's a interview process for those seeking the union's endorsement. And who sort of makes the decision varies from union to union, but there's usually uh, some involvement by political directors, folks like that. SEIU makes use um, very heavily of its own members. People um, seek to be members, uh, you know, members of the union seek to uh, be part of the committee that makes these decisions. And it breaks down by locals. Um, so you can have two different uh, endorsements, as as we as we are having here in the Pittsburgh mayoral race, um, from two different sister locals of the same international union. Okay, that makes sense. So SEIU Healthcare backed Mayor Peduto in previous election cycles. What changed for them this year? Yeah, I think they were when. Bill Beduto had his first successful run for mayor uh, in 2013, SEIU Healthcare. Uh, th- there was no daylight between these two unions. Both unions were very supportive um, of the mayor. And what has happened since then is SEIU Healthcare really expected, hoped anyway, that um, Bill Peduto would help them in their long-running battle uh, with UPMC. They've been trying for many years to uh, unionize certain service workers um, within uh, the UPMC empire, as it were. And... Very early on in the Peduto administration, um, it just became clear uh, that the mayor had sort of a different vision for how to proceed. The union was very supportive of a lawsuit um, filed by Mr. Peduto's predecessor, Luke Ravenstall, that was essentially challenging UPMC's tax exemptions. Um, And the perception was, you know, maybe we get some money out of this, but at any rate, it's leverage for the city. Bill Peduto came along and said, you know what, this lawsuit is really not going to produce the kinds of financial uh, rewards we're expecting. Um, UPMC had essentially countersued um, the city at this point. And the mayor thought, look, there's a better way to do this, a more kind of consensus-driven approach. And so we're going to sort of lay down our arms and see if we can work this out. And you know, from SEIU's perspective, and, and I would venture to say from a lot of voters' perspectives, the mayor's efforts there haven't really paid off. SEIU still doesn't um, have a union there. UPMC still isn't contributing in a in a sustained, uh, sort of committed way to city tax coffers. Um, and of course, it's as it's as big as ever. Um, and the and the sort of resentment about that, the difference of opinion, uh, has just grown over the course of the mayor's administration to the point where it, this isn't just a case where SEIU Healthcare got on board. Uh, with Ed Ganey, SEIU Healthcare was very involved 
in, in helping him to, to set up this run. This endorsement is not at all a surprise. People were talking about SEIU's support, SEIU healthcare support of Ed Ganey, um, before they were even talking about the Ed Ganey campaign. Now, what does 32BJ say about why they're sticking with the mayor? Yeah, I mean, 32BJ in many ways has had just a, a, a polar opposite experience uh, during the mayoral administration. I mean, it's notable that Sam Williamson is probably the most visible officer um, in 32BJ, which I should say represents cleaning folks, uh, security guards, service, you know, kind of maintenance employees. Sam Williamson, an officer with 32BJ, was basically Mayor Bill Peduto, one of Mayor Bill Peduto's appointments to uh, the Board of the Urban Redevelopment Authority, which is the city's kind of lead development agency. Uh, he chairs that board. Um, he sits on the board by the by with uh, Ed Ganey because Ed Ganey used to be a, an ally of the mayor before he undertook this run. Um, so there's all kinds of access there. Um, and uh, Mr. Williamson has been able, uh, and the mayor has been uh, working alongside him to, you know, deliver ki- uh, policy wins and wins for the union itself. The mayor has been an active supporter. He sat down at negotiating tables on behalf of 32BJ, from what the, the members have told me. Um, and 32BJ has supported a lot of the mayor's initiatives, things like sick, uh, the paid sick leave bill that the city passed several years ago and basically had to, to fight in court to get um, to, to finally being able to enact. Um, all of that stuff are, are causes near and dear to 32BJ's heart. And they have no complaints with the mayor, really. I mean, he is he everything that SCIU Healthcare wants uh, Bill Peduto to do and to be for them. S, uh, SCIU 32BJ feels like they've got. So why why would you change horses? Zooming out a little bit, what does this sort of split endorsement say about how this race is shaping up and where each candidate may find support? I think what's interesting about this division is that it's really kind of like the best, you know, we, we talk a lot about Pittsburgh as sort of a, a city divided, right? There's two Pittsburghs. Uh, we talk about that a lot. Well, in a way, there's two SEIUs, and both of them sort of reflect a different perspective on the job the mayor has done. There are certainly people in the city um, who look at the mayor and say, hey, wait a minute, You've, you promised a lot of stuff. Um, and I don't see it happening. I mean, the, the, the fact is a lot of people out there, I, you know, I don't know, I haven't seen polling recently, but you got to know that a lot of residents, a lot of voters in the city of Pittsburgh really think that UPMC should be contributing in some sort of way, some sort of financial way to the city's bottom line, the, the way so many other businesses and, and residents do. That hasn't happened. And I mean, I think, I think the Peduto administration would acknowledge that their efforts to sort of do this more consensus-driven approach have just failed. So SEI's critique, I think, resonates with a lot of people who look at the mayor from the left and say, you haven't really challenged some of the most powerful forces shaping our city and shaping it in ways that we do, that we don't that we don't really want it to be shaped, or at least feel like we should have some role um, in, in helping to determine. SEIU 32BJ, I, I think, sees the mayor, sees, you know, sees the glass half full and then some. Um, so it really kind of depends on which mayor you're seeing here. And I think both of these unions kind of stake out separate and opposing viewpoints um, on who this mayor is and what the legacy of his administration has been during his first two terms. Well, it'll be interesting um, to see what the voters think come May. Yeah, I agree. Potter, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. It's always good to be with you. It's time for a quick break. We'll be right back. The Confluence goes beyond the headlines to introduce you to innovators and difference makers in the community and to engage in conversations about issues impacting our region, from education to social justice to government accountability. Join us for The Confluence, where the news comes together Monday through Thursday mornings at 9 on 90.5 WESA. 
Pennsylvania's hydraulic fracturing industry creates billions of gallons of wastewater each year. According to the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, the salty brine can be toxic and radioactive. The vast majority of that waste is reused, but about 10% of it is sent across state lines to Ohio, where it's injected into the ground. The Allegheny Front's Julie Grant reports some Ohioans have had enough, but say their voices aren't being heard. Julie, welcome to Explainer. Hi, Liz. Why does Pennsylvania send this fracking waste to Ohio? The answer to that depends on who you ask. There are a number of good reasons. Around 2011, before 2011, a lot of the frack waste and conventional and waste from conventional oil and gas drilling was just going to wastewater treatment plants in Pennsylvania. But in 2011, the Corbett administration asked um, wastewater treatment plants not to take this waste anymore. And, and the, you're talking millions, tens of millions of gallons per well. So th- this is a lot of waste. Um, and in 2016, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency put a ban on this and said no more wastewater treatment plants um, could treat waste from oil and gas uh, operations. So it had to go somewhere. Pennsylvania, since then, I think, has developed uh, more ability to recycle this waste, which is just means reusing it, holding it in pits, I think, and reusing it in other operations. But there's still millions and millions of gallons that need to be treated the neighbor, your Pennsylvania's neighbor, Ohio, happens to have over 200 injection wells that are ready to take uh, this kind of waste and put it in the ground, more being permitted all the time. That's in comparison to something along the lines of 16 injection wells in Pennsylvania. So there's just so many more. Many of them have been injected close to the border. Many of them are old oil wells that have been redrilled to be injection wells. And so Ohio's ready to take the waste and it's trucked over here. Are there environmental concerns posed by these wells? I think if you asked an operator, and I have talked with some operators of injection wells, they say that these are perfectly safe. In Ohio, I think they are thought to be built to some of the better standards out there. But for example, people that we've talked with you know, one of the biggest major concerns for people is just the truck traffic. Okay, we talked with people on one street where two injection wells are currently being built, and a state transportation study showed that this company would anticipate 48 trucks during just the four major hours, two hours in the morning, two hours in the evening or afternoon. So, so I mean, in the immediate, that's like one of the biggest changes and biggest concerns for people who live near sites where where injection wells are going in or have been there. You know, and then there are always the issues of potential spills. One of the big concerns people have are just the trucks themselves. If they get in an accident, there can be a spill. In one county where the one I was talking about just now where people have been concerned, this is Belmont County, Ohio, um, there have been 11 spills of brine, so this kind of waste water, just in the past three years. So in statewide, I think in Ohio, it's been about 65 brine spills in the past three years. What do Ohio regulators say about residents' concerns? Well, Ohio is different than Pennsylvania in some ways. As I mentioned, there are quite a few more injection wells there. And Ohio also has all authority over siting of oil and gas infrastructure. So the local community has no say 
and where these facilities are sited. So in this case, in this case in Belmont County that I've referenced, um, the community, not just the people who live on that street, but the county commissioners, the township trustees, even the uh, state senator who's a Republican and the local state representative, also a Republican, they were all saying, look, we support oil and gas development. We don't even oppose injection wells per se, but this is a bad place for this, for our community. The Ohio Department of Natural Resources said, look, if they meet all the requirements of the permit, we don't have a choice. We have to issue the permit. And so they did. Well, in theory, regulators could change the requirements of the permit, right? This is a debate that's gone on. The Ohio Department of Natural Resources will say, look, we're just putting, we're just doing what the state legislature has told us to do. <laughs> uh, we, we spoke with State Senator Frank Hoagland, again, a Republican from this Belmont County that we're talking about, who says he thinks that the ODNR has some leeway to change their rules. They're just not doing it. I'd much rather say, hey, look, if we've got the state legislators, the local leadership to include the township leadership saying, hell no, we don't want this. Well, to me, that should be good enough. He says they're trying various ways uh, to look at how they might rewrite Ohio law to, to give residents or at least local communities some control over where oil and gas facilities like injection wells are sited. Julie, thanks so much for explaining all of this. All right. Thanks, Liz. It's time for another break. Stay with us. Don't get bored this winter. WESA has got you covered. Whether it's virtual or live, our community calendar is your go-to resource for what's happening around town. From lectures to performances, museum workshops to virtual architecture tours, there is still plenty to discover from a safe social distance. Know Pittsburgh better? Visit WESA.FM events to find your next activity in the Pittsburgh region. What do a defunct steam plant and a sinking road have to do with affordable housing? Well, they easily could have derailed a standout project from local nonprofit developer Action Housing. WESA's Margaret J. Krause says the issues illuminate just how hard it is to build affordable housing in Pittsburgh and joins us now. Margaret, welcome back to Explainer. Hey, Liz. So how did this uh, sinking road and this affordable housing development get onto your radar? I... Once a month, get to hang out in the Housing Opportunity Fund meeting. The advisory board meets once a month, virtually now. And so I was just listening to the agenda, and there was this request for additional funding for flats on Ford, which is these 43 units at the corner of Ford and Murray Avenues uh, in Squirrel Hill. It's the kind of item that I expected people to just be like, uh, yep, I approve, and we would move on. But there was this really painful discussion because everyone was like, man, this housing is so great, but I don't know if we can afford to give this extra money um, because the money is actually for a road repair. Mayburn Road runs behind where Flats on Forward would be. It, it backs onto some businesses. There's a retaining wall. And then there's a big concrete stack, which is the last visible piece anyway, of what used to be this steam heating plant. And what happened is there is an underground vault, and that's been compromised, and so the road is sinking. And in order to fix it, they're going to have to fill in the vault and repair the retaining wall and then fix the road, all of which is roughly a million dollars in cost, which Action Housing just doesn't have the money to cover. 
you know, if this were a market rate development, then the developer might be able to go out and just say, you know what, I need a million dollars more in my loan. But that would probably mean raising rents, which of course, Action Housing doesn't want to do because they want to keep all the units affordable to people who need help accessing high quality housing. Uh, And so they ultimately wound up back in front of the Housing Opportunity Fund because no one else was going to pay for this road. And so how did they, what did the Housing Opportunity Fund ultimately do? Did they give them the money? They did. They, They recommended that the Urban Redevelopment Authority approve this additional funding because despite their concerns, they basically were like, this is high quality housing in a desirable neighborhood that would be really hard to access if you're not making a bunch of money. And so ultimately, if we really want to fulfill our mission, we have to approve this despite misgivings about like, what kind of precedent does this set? Um, And what if the city steps back on its infrastructure responsibilities in other cases? But I understand the the funding for this, it, it was almost a fluke that they even had it to give, right? Yes. So at the end of 2020, Councillor Corey O'Connor, who represents the area, recommended that uh, roughly $4 million from its infrastructure budget for the Mon Oakland Connector, which is a mobility project that connects. It's a long story. Uh, but That's for another episode. <laughs> that's another episode. Uh, it's a transit project, basically, but there's a lot of infrastructure around it. To move that money to um, both the Housing Opportunity Fund and some other investments in small businesses and housing. And so roughly $2 million in unexpected money went to the Housing Opportunity Fund. And they had already allocated that money, laid out how they were going to use it in 2021. And so when this came along, ultimately people were like, well, this was kind of gift money anyway. And even though we already budgeted it, this is doing a really good thing. So we should just vote yes. So what made this particular project so compelling to the Housing Opportunity Fund board that they were willing to, you know, blow through spending caps and and potentially set this precedent of of paying for infrastructure repairs? Flats on Forward does two things that are really important to the Housing Opportunity Fund, as well as the Urban Redevelopment Authority and broadly the city, which is it's creating high quality housing in a high opportunity neighborhood, which I think I mentioned before. But a high opportunity neighborhood in this context is a neighborhood where there's a grocery store nearby, you can walk to it. There are good public schools, there's really good transit in Squirrel Hill. And the rents there are so high that if you're not making enough money, it's really tough to access all of those good things in Squirrel Hill. And so that's what this development would do for 43 households. And secondly, there had been, and maybe again, a federal rule called Affirmatively Furthering Fair Housing. And what that says is municipalities who get federal money, not only can they not discriminate in housing, but they are required to reverse trends of segregation, whether economic or racial or both. And so because the financial bar to get into Squirrel Hill is so high, it's keeping people out. And this would actively work to lower that bar. At the end of the day, what does this story demonstrate about about why it is so hard to fund affordable housing? I think there's two main parts to this. One, more and more people say you can't build your way out of this. So if the need stands at roughly 20,000 units, that number is actually growing each year because more apartments are being decommissioned or going offline, uh, you know, more neighborhoods getting more expensive, 
more and more people being pushed to more affordable housing on the periphery of the city or into the the county. Um, And so with the budget that exists, it's just not possible to make substantive headway. And that leads to the second part, which is that it's just really expensive to build anything. But the mismatch between demand and financial support is so apparent all over the place. There's lots of people thinking about how do we address this problem differently? Tax credit financing is not going to cut it. Federal and state dollars is not going to cut it if we want to really address this problem. And so the Urban Redevelopment Authority through the Housing Opportunity Fund has programs for rehabilitation of units, repair. And then other people are beginning to look at what they could do to address this really important part of people's lives. So there are a number of different groups, particularly healthcare providers, who see housing as a, quote, social determinant of health. And so if they want to see fewer people in the emergency room, if they want to see you know, fewer chronic diseases, then maybe they should pony up for affordable housing. So there's some interesting stuff happening, and I'll be really interested to see what it can do at scale. Margaret, thanks so much for explaining this. Thanks, Liz. That's Pittsburgh Explainer for this week. Our show is produced by Katie Blackley. Larkin Page Jacobs is our managing editor. You can find all of our news at our website, wesa.fm, and of course, on the air at 90.5 FM. I'm your host, Liz Reed. Thanks for listening. Let's talk next week.